Well, hey, turn, turn with me to the second chapter of John. And just before we get into the teaching, we have a couple other housekeeping items. Number one, I want you to know that Calvary Chapel, you folks give a significant amount of money to a um, little missionary organization called Love Europe. Love Europe. And it's a couple that Andy and Lori Mashenko know through soccer. Sorry if you don't like sports. <clears throat> but uh, Andy and Lori met them through soccer. They were missionaries out to kind of the inner city of Los Angeles, but they're originally from Hungary. And so God gave them a vision to evangelize in Europe. And so we began supporting them, and their ministry is translating for all the several dialects in Europe. They write in this recent newsletter, which I've put on the back chair, about how many languages they've, uh, you know, translated the Bible from English into, you know, those languages. And you say, well, why are you bringing this up now? Well, isn't it amazing how the Lord works? I don't know if you know this. I think you do. There's an awful war happening in Europe, Ukraine. And over 4 million now, I think, I think the number is 4 million people are displaced and are refugees. Several hundred thousand of those refugees have gone to Hungary. This little couple, isn't it amazing how the Lord works? Two people, husband and a wife. The Lord just tells them four or five, six years ago, I want you to start translating the Bible into English, or excuse me, into the native languages throughout Europe especially Hungary, your home place. I want you to have a heart for Hungary. A couple hundred thousand refugees, Ukrainian and Russian refugees come across the border recently. And they're friends with the medical missionary team over there. And the medical missionary team reaches out and says, we love what we're doing. We're, we're praising the Lord for who he's bringing to us. Of course, we're sad about the, the war and we're praying against the war, but here's the problem. We don't have any gospel materials. So they supplied, I can't remember the number, it's 12 or 14,000 Ukrainian gospel tracts just recently into the, uh, uh, to the refugee population there in Hungary. And I just want you to know, you folks give an amazing amount of money so that those can be uh, copied off and made. You had a part in that. And here's what I also want you to know, is they want us to come and help spread the good news in Europe. They could even accept a team from us as early as Jan or excuse me, June, if anyone's interested. If you're interested, on the back chair back there is their newsletter, and you could come see me after uh, the service, and uh, we'll pray about it, okay? So that's the first thing. And the second thing before we get, begin our teaching in John chapter 2, uh, you know what's bad for the pastor? You have to go home on Sunday afternoons. Not because I don't love home, but here's when you start thinking, man, I should have said that. I shouldn't have said that. Why didn't I say that? Oh, I butchered that. That's just terrible, Lord. But the Lord always seems to cover it over and be gracious. But I did last week in sort of articulate, I mean, you got to be honest, right? You just got to be candid in sort of articulating to you this week of creation that it seems like some people see in the text that John is creating. And if you weren't here, you're probably going, what is he talking about? But I just want you to see that in verse 19 of chapter 1, we see this testimony of John the Baptist. And after he gets done with this testimony, in verse 29, it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. And then in verse 35, he says, again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And then in verse 43, he says, the following day, do you get what I'm after here? It seems like uh, the book of, or the writer of John, John himself, is sort of recreating, sort of, and putting side by side this first part of the book of John with the creation account. You'd be like, what? Well, go back to the first verse of John 
and just read the first three verses or first three words. Ready? Everybody say it with me. In the beginning. When you read in the beginning, what do you think of? The beginning of the Bible, the beginning of time, right? Or at least time as we know it. God lives outside of time. And so I sort of butchered that. <laughs> Just got to be honest with me or with you. And uh, here's what I did. is I uh, printed out a copy, it's right behind Xander back there, of one pastor's rendition side by side of the Genesis account and the story of John, if you're interested, you can pick it up back there and sort of go through that yourself because, look here, chapter 2, verse 1, watch this. On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee. Now, we're going to talk about here that inside the teaching here in a minute, but many people believe that day, the third day, sort of completes or is getting close to the completion of the creation account sitting side by side uh, you can look at that and be a Berean and, and love that. Remember, I want you to know this. I think it was Tozer said this. I'm going to remind you of this. Almost every week we talk about the book of John. John is so simple, a child could wade in it, but is so profound that an elephant could swim in it. And if there's ever a place in the Gospels, and there's, there, it's, it's throughout the Gospels, but if there's ever a place or a book, or uh, even I should say the New Testament, if there's ever a place in the New Testament where you see the literary structure of a seasoned writer who God prepared, inspired to write down an account of Jesus's life, it's the book of John. You see, because the book of John is writing to you and me and us for a specific purpose. It's clear. And the reason to know it is I can simply read. And so can you. And when you turn with me to John chapter 20, he is going to tell us the reason he's writing the book. And he's also telling you a little bit about the literary structure or part of the literary structure that John is going to uh, include in his writing. Here it is. I'll read it for you. Verse 30, chapter 20. And truly, Jesus did many other signs. Stop right there. He doesn't say miracles. Fascinating. He could have said miracles here in the Greek. He could have used that word. He didn't. He used signs. Jesus does do miracles. You're going to see them here starting today, the first miracle centered around a marriage, turning water into wine. It's the first miracle, but the writer didn't say miracle and he did it on purpose. And the reason is, is because in the next verse, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the expected one that's testified to in the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, which now, by the way, is our Old Testament. The one that we knew, John's saying, the writer John, not John the Baptist, the writer John, the one that we knew, the one that we touched, the one that we handled, the reason I'm saying that is because he says it later in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the one that was real, truly here, Jesus, he's the Christ. The expected one, the one that was prophesied about in the Old Testament, the Christos, but he's also the son of God. He wants you to know that Jesus is in nature and essence God. We believe in one God and three persons, three eternally distinct persons, yet we believe in, I always do this in the youth group, how many gods we believe in? One in three persons. That's what the Bible teaches. And here, John tells you, he's writing so that you'll know he's the predicted one from the Hebrew scriptures, what's our Old Testament, and that you know that he's the Son of God. He's God the Son. And here it comes. Wait a minute. Don't forget the last verse. If you're here and you don't know if you're going to heaven or even if there is a heaven, the Lord's speaking to you today because John said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and that believing you may have life in his name. John, as I told you last week, doesn't want to take the evangelical ball and hide it. 
He just wants to tell you why he's writing the gospel so that you'll get saved. Pretty simple. And if you're already saved, see, here's what's amazing about the book of John. We've chosen the eagle as our sort of our symbol of what we're doing when we're marching through John. Why? Because the eagle is the bird that can look right into the sun, S-U-N. The book of John is the book that makes you go and look at the sun, S-O-N. It's more about who Jesus is rather than what he did. And he's writing about signs because signs are real. When you go down and you get to the red octagonal thing that's over on the right-hand side, it's a sign, but there's something behind the sign. There's this whole thought behind the sign. Have you ever thought about that? It's that you better stop right here or you're going to get killed or hurt or there's going to be an accident. And not only should you stop right here, but when you stop, remember, if you come to that stop before the person to your right, you have the right of way. So are you getting what I'm saying? The sign tells you a whole bunch of stuff that's sitting behind it. That's why he uses the word signs in this book. He wants you to sort of know about the miracles. That's fine, but he doesn't want you to have a shallow faith based on miracles. Because what happens if you pray for a miracle and it doesn't come? Then where does your faith go? In the toilet, maybe. Should we pray for miracles? I pray for them. I pray for healings. The Lord can do it. I'm, I'm convinced. I know he can. I've seen it happen in your lives, in my life. I love miracles. You love miracles. But if you base your faith on miracles, it's sometimes it could be possibly that your life could be up and down in the Lord. So he says, I'm going to give you not a miracle, although they are miracles. I'm going to give you a sign because I want you to see what's behind the miracle just like a red octagonal thing. Am I saying that right? Is it octagonal? Is that a word? I might be making that up just as I go. Octagonal. Okay, whatever. All right, we got it. Eight-sided. But I want you to see that because here's why. Jesus gives you several signs that are unique or excuse me, John gives you several signs that are unique to this book because he's trying to convince you that you are seeing the one who was predicted in the Old Testament and he's the son of God. And he wants you to believe and have eternal life well up in you. And you talk about a story that's multi-layered, a history. This really happened, what we're about ready to study and I could be up here for probably four or five hours. And you know what? It's baseball season, so we don't care if we get home or not. I'm kidding. But if you are sort of shaky right now, first of all, if you don't know if you have eternal life, this message is for you. Second, if you're wondering what the Christian life is all about, it's about forgiveness of sins and the Lord doing a, um, coming in and doing a new thing. He's not going to fit. Do you remember what Jesus said? Don't put old wine into a new wineskin because what'll happen? It'll, pow, it'll break. In other words, Jesus said, I'm doing a new thing. If you have been a person like I used to be, who was very legalistic and rule-bound and felt guilty a lot about your religion, and I put quotes around religion, this is the message for you. If you're down in the dumps, you just feel like you're stuck, you're in a rut. Anybody ever felt like that? And you know the scriptures. You, you know the scriptures that says the joy of the Lord is our strength. And you go, really? What does that mean? I ain't feeling very joyful. This is the message 
for you. And we could keep going on and on and on. It's just that multi-layered. So do me a favor and turn with me to chapter 2 as the sound people apparently have worked out the bugs and I don't fade in and out. That's good news. Have I spoken too early? Well, in 50 minutes, we'll know. Somebody said, oh, like, oh, 50 minutes. <laughs> Here it is. Let's read it together. The word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. <laughs> And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? By the way, I read that in sort of a rebuking way. I'm not so sure that's the way it should be read. This is just normal conversation. He's not being, you know, a sexist or anything about that. We'll talk about, I think he's saying, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Remember, when Jesus asks questions, it's not really for him. It's for them, for her. And here he goes, he says, doesn't he? My hour has not yet come. So we got to figure out what that means. And his mother said to the servants, if there's ever a Bible you and I and we should remember, it's this, or a Bible verse that you and I and we should remember, we should all just remember this, put it on all our t-shirts, on our refrigerators. We should just do this. Whatever he says to you, do it. Counseling 101. Oh, what's your problem? Whatever he says to you, just do it. Nike. All right. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and didn't know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Here it comes. It comes full circle. If you are examining the claims of Christ, you'll want to circle this. This beginning of signs, not miracles. It's on purpose. He chose under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say signs, not miracles. He wants you to see the miracle, but he wants you to see everything behind it. More particularly, he wants to see who is behind it. He wants you to see the Son, S-O-N. Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Think about that. They've been called. There's either five or six disciples with him or apostles with him now. And the reason I say five or six is there's five that's listed, but Jane, or excuse me, John, we know, brought his brother, so his brother might be there too. You can look about, just trace that through in the first chapter of John. But anyway, his disciples believed in him, and after this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they didn't stay there many days. So let's pray and ask the Lord to do a mighty work in our hearts. Well, Lord, what a chapter, and we're so thankful we're here to take this on, and we just ask, Lord, that you would bless us in mighty ways as we examine what you put on the heart and mind of the writer John, Lord. These words that came straight from your throne room. Lord, help us to see and to grow in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing we have to tackle is on the third day. What does that mean? Well, most people believe just simply this, 
Look up in the beginning of, uh, or the end of chapter 1. Look in verse 49, or actually verse 46. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And then you know this story. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no Jacob. It actually says Jacob right there. No deceit, no guile, right? And we talked about that. And then Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You're going to see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus there is referring to the story in Genesis, Jacob's ladder and saying, I'm the key. There's only one ladder between heaven and, he or heaven and earth. I got it backwards. Heaven and earth. And I'm it, Jesus is saying. And the only way that you can get to heaven is by me. You can read about that more in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now, time out, rabbit trail. There's so many layers here to the book of John that it's hard to teach because there's so much material. But I want you to know something. There's eight or nine signs that John is going to set forth now here in the next several chapters. First, he's going to introduce himself. He's going to allow, like the eagle, the disciples and Mary to look at the sun. Then he's going to go to different people in different signs and show them who he is. Are you getting what I'm saying? Because there's these eight, some people consider his rising again the night sign, but whatever, eight signs that he wants to show us, John does, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But contemporaneous with that is in the book of John, there are seven I am statements. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you need to know that the name that Moses was to call God was I am. And here's how the story went. God, I know you've called me to lead the nation, but I don't feel like I'm good enough. In fact, I'm not a very good speaker. In fact, and Moses was making up excuses. And then he goes, and I don't even know what to call you. What should I call you? And God says, I am. Tell them I am. In other words, God was saying there was never a beginning and there's never an ending. I've always existed and I always will. I am. And then we get to the book of John and it's mind-blowing. <laughs> because Jesus gives us seven I am statements showing us the perfect revelation of who God is to us through him. And it's, it's as if John is telling us and he is telling us, watch this, you need to know this, everything you need me to be, God is saying, I am in the Son of Jesus Christ. Folks, this is multi-layered. It's hard to teach in 50 minutes. You got more time? No, I'm kidding. <clears throat> so I got through all that. But I'm just sort of just trying to tell you what the third day is. Most people just believe it means the third day after Nathaniel was called. That's all. But see, to us, and we, or, you know, we know if we've been exploring the Bible, we know it means lots more. Do you know this? Obviously, you know Jesus was resurrected on the third day. There's also, do you remember this, the earth or excuse me, uh, the, the uh, earth emerged from the water and there was sort of plants that, that came around and God actually saw it and said it was good twice on the third day. What else happened on the third day? Well, uh, God said he would come down from Sinai with the law on the third day. There's a reference to the third day, a really cool reference. You can look it up after church. 
in Hosea 6.2, that's sort of, not sort of, that's a messianic prophecy that talks about the importance or gives a hint as to the importance of the third day. How many days was Jonah in the belly of the whale? What did Jesus say? They said, hey man, we need you to show us some stuff. We want some miraculous, supernatural stuff. And Jesus said, listen, I've already handled that, or I'm going to handle that. I'm only going to give you one sign while I'm here for you, because I don't want to trip up your faith. I don't want it to be shallow. And here it is. When you ever think, is God supernatural? Is he who he says he is? Jesus says, look at one place. Jonah. You say, Jonah? He was in some whale. And Jesus said, but that is the sign that I was buried away for three days and I was raised again. Jesus was talking about the cross, his death and his resurrection. And he said, if you ever feel unloved, this is, this is what I think. If you ever feel unloved, unstable, if you don't know what life is all about, just remember the cross. It's all answered at the cross. See, the third day, evokes this in us or the, in, in, in those who are reading this anticipation, this hope. That's what this week is about. But see, I get funny when I say that because every week is about it. I don't just celebrate, neither do you. You don't just celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ in April or March, do you? You're celebrating every morning when you're thanking the Lord in devotions and you come home at night and you thank the Lord. Oh, Lord, I have a relationship with you all by the blood. Of course, we're going to do it and memorialize it and think about it, but we celebrate it all the time. So do you. But here we say he's certainly bringing this up and, and the people who are reading and now us who are reading it today, this anticipation, this hope on the third day. There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Is it any wonder, folks, that the enemy of our souls takes a direct beeline attack for marriages? I mean, what's the first institution that God ordains? You just, you, you, you know, you, you get your handy-dandy two-year Bible plan out. And you go to the first day and you read about creation and then here it comes, man. Husband and wife. Wow. Pretty important. Oh, I got excited and lost my place. (laughs) But, right? God ordains marriage. I'm going to have a helper for you here, Adam. I'm going to take you out of your side and, oh, it's going to be good, a helper. And what I've given to you in gifts and talents or haven't given to you, she has other gifts and talents and it's gonna gonna supplement. And then you know what's gonna happen is you're gonna be fruitful and multiply and you're gonna talk to your children about me. When they lie down, when they go to sleep, you're gonna talk about the Lord. When you're walking to and fro, wherever you walk to and fro during the day, you're gonna be talking about the Lord. You're gonna talk to your kids about, when you put them down at night, you're gonna talk to the Lord. And then these kids for 18 years, they're gonna be in your seminary right there at the house. And they're going to look at you and they're going to wonder, is there really a God? And they're going to see you faithfully, dynamically trusting the Lord and him filling you with hope and forgiveness and strength. And mark this, joy when there shouldn't be joy. And they're going to go, whoa, it's real. The thing that they always preach to me, that he died and rose again, it comes out in their life. I see resurrection power. That's what they're going to say. And God, right from the beginning of the Bible says, I'm going to ordain that. And Jesus, in his first miracle, if you want to call it a miracle, John here calls it a sign, he chooses when he gets an invite, watch this, you sour puss Christians, to a fun festive thing. He doesn't go, no, I can't go there. They might be laughing. They might be having fun. They might be celebrating. Somebody might actually smile at this thing. Can you believe it? We're not going, mom. He doesn't say that. He goes, yeah, of course. See, here's the thing about Jesus, and it's true of Christians too. Wherever he went, he sanctified the situation, not vice versa. 
the rub of the world didn't rub off on him. We go, he goes to a situation and he talks about spiritual things and pr- provokes people to spiritual thinking. He doesn't just go. He has a great time, but he doesn't just go and leave it at that. See, you get a lot of questions when you are in this position. Can I go here? Can I go there? And the answer is, I'm not sure about that one. What's the Lord calling you to do? And if you go into that situation, is it going to affect your witness? If so, you probably should stay away. But if you're going to go in there, just like Jesus, you're going to impact the spiritual climate for his good and his glory. You see that? Jesus didn't shy away from a good time. Come on, folks. He goes right to the wedding. And it's as if he's saying, I believe in these ceremonies. See, that's another thing. What do we have in the culture right now? I just heard it some, anyway, whatever. Some celebrity talking about how you don't need a piece of paper. Well, you, you don't get what marriage is if you say that. Because here Jesus publicly eternally expresses his approval for holy matrimony, the great mysterion, Paul calls it, and I believe through this, he sanctifies it in a public way, saying to the world, I do till death do us part. I'm committed. You see, because there's something mysterious there. You're not just living for each other's happiness. You understand this. You're living to the glory of God, and it's a serious thing. It can be fun and helpful and wonderful, and you have good days, but there's days, except for in our marriage, where you have bad days, and I'm kidding, and, and you, don't, you fight, and you don't like each other, but you still commit, you see, because the gospel is lived out here. It's lived out in forgiveness, it's lived out in love, it's lived out in grace, it's lived out in all these things, and it's mysterious, yes, but the Lord comes by in his first sign and says, I choose to do the first thing I ever do at a wedding. I want you to know it's really important. Doesn't that give you faith (laughs) to just keep pressing on right there against the culture wars, right? Here it is, the Lord, on the third day, hope and uh, uh, anticipation. There's a wedding. Vows are being uh, 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 said to each other. By the way, the word in the Greek there means binding together. There's a binding together publicly in Cana of Galilee. Folks, don't tune out. It's important you know your maps. Where's Galilee? It's north. It's not near Jerusalem, folks. They had to walk here. It would be 65 miles of walking. They're up there. Cana, it's in the Jezreel Valley. They have two sites where they think could be Cana, Cana, but it's, it's near Nazareth. And one of the folks who has been called Nathaniel we learn later in the book of John, is from Cana of Galilee. It means reeds. Reeds, like things out of the ground, reeds. But he's from there. So why did Jesus and the apostles and Mary, why are they there? Well, some people believe it was Nathaniel's friends. Other people believe it was Mary and the family of Mary's friends who lived in Cana of Galilee because... Mary and Joseph and Jesus and his brothers and sisters lived just about eight miles away in the town of what? Nazareth. Okay, so it's not on the Sea of Galilee, but it's out in a valley. And probably the thing is, is that the family of Jesus knows these folks because it seems like Mary has something to do with the order of service or hosting or something, right? So many people believe that it was Mary's friends. Well, now both Jesus and his disciples are invited, and when they ran out of wine... Now, so let's just talk about this. 
Well, they ran out of wine. So they had wine at the uh, ceremony. And generally, this is fascinating. They would bring out the best wine first. And if they ran out, they would sort of just get the terrible stuff and bring that out. Because, anyway, that's what they would do. But if you notice... What happens here, remember, the stuff that they used second was the good wine. Would you all agree with me after you've read it here? Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. Which tells you something about following Jesus versus being out in the world. Do you remember this? Jesus said, if you'll drink from the thing I'll give you to drink to the woman at the well, you'll never thirst again. You'll always be satisfied. You see, the things that Jesus imparts to us satisfies us always. Doesn't matter whether it comes out first, second, or last. But the things of the world, although they taste great at first, turn into nothing. Bad stuff. It's always that way, folks. If you're being tempted to follow the things of the world, riches, whatever it is, just run it down the line. They look good. They're shiny. You know it's going to help you in the short term, but the problem is they always run out and never satisfy. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. It's the whole same thing, man. It just never does it. Here, They bring out wine. So let's talk about wine. Well, throughout the Christian world now, if you read any commentator or any pastor, some pastors are going to tell you, no, this is just regular wine and it's alcoholic and that's the whole deal. Other pastors are going to talk to you about uh, uh, the, the climate over in Israel, except for the week when we go, of course, when it's really hot and uh, they need to put water into the wine so that it wouldn't you know, spoil or do whatever. I'm not a winemaker, so I don't know. And some people say, well, there was no alcoholic content in it at all, which is really fascinating because if you go to Israel, it just happened to us two weeks ago, in the shop in which we were staying or the one right beside, there were a whole bunch of wines. And one of the fellows on our trip who doesn't come to church here purchased one And he's sort of laughing with me as he's showing it to me. And I'm like, oh, great. What is he showing me? (laughs) And at the bottom of this wine bottle, it says 0.00 alcoholic content. In other words, the Jews just spoke as grape juice, whether it was fermented or alcoholic or not, as wine, because it came from the vine. So I'm just giving you the different views of whether or not this was wine or not. It doesn't really make a difference in the debate that's all going around in your head. Can I drink or can I not drink? Because if you really want to follow Jesus, Jesus said this, I'm not drinking again until the kingdom comes in heaven. Jesus is a total teetotaler right now. As we speak, I get in trouble when I launch out in these areas. I can't believe I get in trouble for it. For a pastor who sort of talks about whether to drink wine or not, it's now become in vogue for Christian people to drink wine or drink alcohol and to think nothing of it. Does the Bible call us to drink or not to drink? I don't know except for this. I know that you're not to be drunk with anything except The Holy Spirit, not in a weird way. It just means you're not to be under the influence of anything other than the Holy Spirit. So could you have a glass of wine or an alcoholic drink? Yes, of course you could. But I'm going to just tell you from my experience, and I would venture to say that I've drank most than many of you. And in my heyday, when I was immune to it, I don't care what anyone said, a big glass of wine, just one, would impact me. But I'm not saying whether you can drink or not. One time we told the story of how we say to the elders, you're not to drink. And the reason we say that, we think it's biblical. To the elders, everybody listen, write it down. 
to the elders, the leaders of the church. We asked them not to drink. Can you imagine if one of you called me to come because you were in the DUI tank and you wanted me to help you get out? I'm a lawyer too, so I could charge you for it. But you were in the DUI tank and you wanted me to come as the pastor and minister to you and maybe get you out of jail. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I can't. I've been drinking. What would you think? Or what would you think if, uh, you know, I was counseling, you know, somebody down there and then I was running out and he has problems with alcohol and then I was running out and drinking. You would say, man, that's sort of weird. Would you say that? So we ask the leaders of the church, listen to what I'm saying. Leaders, not congregants, not to drink. Because we have a job to do, and we've been called to something that might put us on duty at a time when we're off duty. Get it? So now let's talk about non-leaders or non-elders of the church. Well, the Bible says... Don't be drunk on anything but the Holy Spirit. Not weird, just under the influence. Don't be under the influence. Can you have a drink of wine? Maybe, maybe not. But here's what you have to ask yourself if you read through the book of Corinthians. Is this going to glorify the Lord? I'm not, this isn't leading questions here, folks. Is it going to glorify the Lord? I mean, and is it going to help me to follow hard after him? And you and I have to ask that question. But let me just say one other thing. As I get in trouble almost every time I preach on this, somebody has an objection about this, fine. Have an objection, come up with me, talk to me, but don't go out in a huff about it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but all of those parameters that I'm saying, does it glorify the Lord? Does it hurt or help you? Does it help your pursuit of the Lord? That's not just for drinking. That's for what you watch on TV. That's what magazines you choose to look at. That's what social media, blah, I could go right down the road. You understand that. The Bible says we're able to partake of anything, but not everything is profitable. All right, we all good there? All right, good. We can move on. <laughs> So he did, he had wine here, but his disciples were invited and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus goes to him and said, well, they have no wine. See, Mary knew there was that Jesus, because she'd been spoken to, you know, all those years ago through the heavenlies about who this son was. She even sang a song about it. By the way, she says she needs a redeemer in the song. So she wouldn't be a co-redemptress. She needs a redeemer, just like you and I need a redeemer, a savior. But anyway, she sort of knows, and she's now getting the itch. Think about her life. She was betrothed for the one-year period where you couldn't have marital relations and became pregnant. And she tried to tell people, come on, it was the Holy Spirit. And they said, oh, come on, really, seriously, come on. And, and she grew up, and now probably her husband's not there. We don't hear about him, so most people believe he's passed by this time. And, you know, that's sort of nice to have somebody else in your corner who was there, but he's not there. So she's thinking, my goodness, if he would just reveal who he really is. So here's what I do. I, I, I'm here maybe as the, the servant helping out the, the wedding party, and, and I know it's unbelievably uh, uh, embarrassing to run out of wine because this thing would last for a week. These weddings would last for a week and you were supposed to party and have fun in the good way, in the Lord's way. And now they've come to me and, oh, I feel so bad for my friends. They don't have the wine and it's going to egg all over their face. What does she do? She runs right to Jesus. The only hope of anything getting solved in anything is Jesus. You see it? And she knows it, but she also probably has this inclination or idea, man, now's the time. Turn it on now, Jesus. Son, if you ever had a time to emerge, here it is. Ta-da! Yet, there's some good things. They have no wine. 
And Jesus said to her, woman. Now, he says this to her on the cross when he gives her to the writer John for him to look after from thereafter. She's not, he's not making some sexist, weird statement. Listen to this. She says, I want you to help me because I know you're the predicted one. He speaks to her then not as the predicted one, or excuse me, not as the son of Mary, but as the son of God. So she does, he doesn't call her Mary. He just says, woman. She wants to relate to him on that basis. So he relates back to her on that basis. Do you get it? He relates back to her as the, the Messiah. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? It's to evoke in her, gosh, this is beautiful. When the Lord asks you a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's because he wants to do something great in you. And here he does it. What does your concern have to do with me? I mean, he, he's saying, do you understand who I am? Is that what this is about? That's what she's saying to her. And then he says something that's fantastic. You should be jumping up and down when you hear him say this. So should I. My hour has not yet come. There's another theme throughout the entire book of John. As you read through the book of John, he keeps saying it over and over until chapters 13 and chapter 17. Just turn with me to chapter 17. Here Jesus is going to pray for himself after he's with his disciples. And Jesus spoke these words, verse 1, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Here, watch this. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified on the earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What is he talking about? He's saying, we're ready now, Lord. Let's go to the cross. So when you get back to John chapter 2, you understand this. Here's why you should jump up and down. <laughs> because God has a divine timetable. Even with his son. And when you pray about or for something, you know how you pray, like I pray. Lord, I need this and I need it before I get to work this morning. Thanks, I'll see you there. And then you show up to work and, you know, it's not in the inbox and it's not wrapped up pretty. And you're like, what's going on, man? Come on, Lord, you're, you don't answer prayer, man. See, the Lord for his children is always, there's never a time that he doesn't work something out for your good. And if you really believe that, and I really believe that, as we pray, you see, it impacts our prayers Lord, I'd love for you to do this. This is sort of the way I've figured it out. But Lord, not for my glory, your glory. And Lord, I'll just be satisfied and happy with your timing because I know your timing is best for me. It's always best, Lord. Never a time is my timing best. If you're taking me through something, it must be for my good and your glory. And I'm happy with that. Thank you, Lord. And it, shoo, it just changes the way you live, right? The Lord's on the, Jesus is on the Lord's timetable. We are on the Lord's timetable. Well, his mother said to the servants, just so great. As you go back to John chapter two, just, hey guys, servants, uh, whatever he says, just do it. Can you imagine? And then she just sort of walks out of the room. <laughs> oh, okay. Now think it's the servants, not the apostles. They're the servants at the wedding. We did a 14-week prayer study for adult Sunday school uh, a couple months ago, or maybe six months ago, 
And we had a book by a guy named Hallesby, a Norwegian. He uses this story. He says uh, his uh, uh, thought when it comes to this story as it relates to prayer is, if you want to pray effectively, give up the timing and the when and the what and the method of how God answers your prayers. Just give it up like Mary did and just ask Jesus for it and go away and don't worry. Come on, folks. Come on. You are like me. Okay, there's this situation, and it's got the pit in your stomach. Anybody ever been there? And you have a sort of a time at night where you can't sleep, and then you're like watching reruns, and you're like, what in the world? And then you pray about it and that sort of thing, but then what do you do, like me? You worry. You know what Mary did? Man, this is going to be weird and messed up for my friends, but there's only one answer, and it's Jesus. And I'll go to him, and I'll give him my request. That's prayer. And I'll be satisfied with when he does it, what he does it, how he does it on his timetable because he's on the divine timetable of his father. And then I'll go away and let him handle it. Wouldn't you love to pray like that? Okay, well, the Lord says that's the way we're to pray. Why do you think he says don't worry? So you go back and you say, he says, whatever he says to you, just do it. It also implies something else here, folks that you're gonna see all throughout the book of John. It's more multi-layered. Oh my gosh, it's 12 o'clock. It's more multi-layered than this. For some reason, the Lord wants you and I to cooperate with him. Here's how we think of God. Pray for it, go sit on the couch and wait till it happens. But the Lord doesn't say that. In fact, you can see it in one of the stories that's coming up. I can't even believe it. We actually went to this pool when we were in Jerusalem. It's in John chapter 5, the pool of Bethesda. And this dude has been sitting there for almost 40 years and has nobody to put him into the pool, and he can't get in there. And Jesus says to him two startling things. Do you really want to be made well? Which blows me away, by the way until you work with people who like to dabble in sin, and then you're like, do you really want to be made well? But Jesus says it's in a nice way, unlike me. Do you really? And then the guy says, yeah, I'm ready to roll. And Jesus says something unbelievable. I can't even believe he says it, but it's instructive to you in this story. He says, take up your mat and walk. Can you imagine what the guy was thinking? There's no way I haven't been able to move in 38 years. And when Jesus' commandment was met, listen to this, with just a flicker of faith, boom, he could walk. Now, when you go back to what the mom said here in verse 5, you'll start to understand it more. You want the beauty in your life? Whatever he says, do it. Say, well, I'm just going to read the two-year Bible and hope my life goes great. Well, in that Bible are going to be a million things that the Lord, maybe just a few, but whatever. There's going to be things that the Lord tells you to do. And the beauty happens when you obey. So he says, do it. And his, uh, there were then these six water pots of stone. And now this is really important according to the pure manner of purification of the Jews. Apparently, what they were using at the wedding, they would also use to ceremonially, ugh, I can't say the word, but you know what I'm trying to say, cleanse themselves before all the things that they needed to do, eat or whatever. And apparently, so, so that would represent sort of the law and the religion. I'm going to get you clean on the outside, man. I lived my Christian life for 10 years like this. Just tell me the rules and I'll do them. According to the manner of purifications, it contained 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. Now, did they fill them all up? I don't know. Was there already some water in there? Maybe, but whatever. This would have been a really hard job, wouldn't it have been if you were a servant? You ever tried to carry a five-gallon bucket of water or concrete or something? That's a lot, man. And here you're talking hundreds of gallons. 
Well, anyway, they filled the water pot. Jesus said, just fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. So they do. And they take it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and didn't know where it came from, watch this. This is important for the story. In parentheses, but the servants uh, who had drawn the water, they knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom. The MC and the bridegroom, and he puts his arm around him, and he just says, wow, we brought the best stuff out for last. And he was happy. Everyone brings out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you've kept the good wine until now. And this was the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum. That's the fishing village right on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. So he went several miles to the east and a little bit to the north, and he went over to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers and disciples, and they didn't stay there in many days. Now watch, I got to tie this up. The beauty is going to happen right here, I think. So what's all this about? Well, the first thing is, as you know, as I said, they use these things for ceremonial washings. And if you just read the story, you would say, wouldn't you say this with me? If you didn't know anything about the Bible, you'd go, wow, there, I read this story in the Bible in John chapter 2 where these stone pots were empty, but at the end of the story, they were all filled up with wine. Wouldn't you say that? Is that what you would say the story was? Well, that's right. He turns the waters of the Jewish purification into the wine, listen to this, of the wedding feast of the groom. Who is the groom in the Bible always? It's Christ and who is his bride? It's the church. He shows here that he's ushering in this covenant of grace. See, that's where your heart and my heart would melt. The Bible tells us that you've been saved by grace through faith. And then it goes on and says, not of yourselves, lest you would boast. That surely resonates with me because I would be boasting. If it wasn't for grace, I would just sit up here and I'd go, jeez, I've been here way more times than he has. I'd put more money in too. I'm way better. But now because of grace, I could never say that because it's nothing that I ever did. It's all that he did that allows me to come into the family of God and fellowship with all of you with this life that pulses in and out of us. So here's what, the, what this is saying is that this Jewish rite of cleansing, this stony, empty system. It was graceful in this sense. The empty system of laws and rules was graceful in this sense in that it showed you you needed resource and a savior. So it was graceful in that sense, but it wasn't full. It was just sort of dead and not satisfying. But Jesus comes and fills up as they watch, as they start to take out as they obey. It comes in and becomes wine. It's when humans cooperate with the grace of God is when the beauty happens. And he says that's obsolete. And so it leads to this, that Jesus has manifest his glory as a savior who replaces dead, rotting, external, outward religion with a real change inside as he washes away the sins in our life and purifies us the way he does it, our lives, watch. Because wine in the Bible represented beauty and joy. As he washes away our sins and fills us up to overflowing... Our lives become something that was formerly dead and external, but now it's so inward and contagious in a sense that it's dynamic and fruitful and beautiful. He takes beauty, or he takes ashes and turns it into beauty. That's the whole message of the Bible. He forgives our sins and takes us in a world that doesn't want to see it and makes us salt and light. 
so that when people watch this, when people look at us, there's one thing, or there's going to be many things, stability and love, it's going to catch their eye, but there's going to be another thing, because if you look through the Old Testament, wine several places, I'll tell you after the sermon, because I'm running out of time, is represented as joy. And when people out there in the world are going to look at you and say, my goodness, the joy that's in that vessel. It's supernatural. I've tried to fill it with water and sex, or water. <laughs> I've tried to fill it with money, <laughs> money and sex and everything else, all the things, that's what I tried to fill. And it was fun at first, but it just led to dead, rotting stuff. And I never could be satisfied. In fact, Rolling Stones wrote a song about it. It's just the anthem of the world. I can't get any satisfaction. It's the anthem of the world. But you and I and we are filled up with this joy of the Lord because of the grace of God, because of the cross of Christ. And now when we go out into this dark and hurting world, it's exploding out of us. It's not that you manufacture stuff. It's that you have the joy of the Lord. And now you're going to say, here it comes. I can see the wheels turning, but I ain't joyful. I think it was Martin Luther, but I might be wrong on this quote, who said, the gospel is what saves, but joy is what that gets them into the nets. People are watching, folks. You say, I don't have joy. Well, here's the key, I think. Ready? As you yield to the filling of the Holy Spirit, watch this. I'm stuck. I'm in a rut. I don't know what to do. Go back to the last thing the Lord asked you to do that you never did and do it. You're like, what? Well, when did the beauty happen here? It's when he said, just do whatever he says. Just, I, I know, just go and fill the water pots. I can see Jesus. They're probably saying, water pots? Why would I fill it up with more water? That's probably what they're saying. They're probably in the Christian church in America. Why would I fill that up, Jesus? Jesus said, just do it. And then just, here, let's watch, watch. I personally am convinced you can disagree with me. That's okay. It doesn't say this. I'm convinced that the only thing that was wine was in the thing that was being pulled out. You can disagree with me if you want. I don't care. If you think that's the whole pot, fantastic. I'm happy with that too. But here's the deal. E either way you believe, watch. It's when you dip it into the water, you become obedient. The beauty comes. There's one final point. So, so I guess, let me wrap that up. So what's the last thing the Lord's called you to do? Speak to that person about forgiveness. You're like, nah, I ain't doing that. No way. Give up an improper romantic relationship because you're having sex outside of marriage. Maybe saying that. No one cares. It's the culture. Give up your magazines. You're looking on your phone. I don't know what it is. Maybe he's asking you to go to a family member and apologize and you won't do it because you think it's their fault. But the Lord's, you know he's calling you. You know what I'm saying? I'm convinced. Go back to the last thing the Lord's asked you to do that you haven't done. And then just, look, watch this. Just get with your Bible and read it and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal what he's saying and to speak to you and everything that the Lord asks you to do, don't wait. Just do it. Joy. Now, there's one final thing, and I'll close. Watch this. This is so amazing about the story. It's almost hard to, con I can hardly contain myself. You feel like you're stuck, you're in a rut? Okay. I want you to know that the people at the wedding, <laughs> they never found out about the miracle. Who found out about the miracle? Jesus, Mary, disciples, 
and servants. If you want to hear from the Lord, it's the weirdest thing. You know, the world teaches you to hoard things up, be the master of your domain, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The Bible says, if you want to have life, give yours up. Here, the people who knew about the miracle were the ones who were serving. The Lord, is it Psalm 25? Yeah, I always get it. It's either Psalm or Proverbs, but I think it's Psalm 25, 14, gives the secrets to those who fear him. I read that one time. I said, man, oh man, is that serious? And the ones who fear him serve him. And the ones who serve him serve his people. Are you getting it? And when you're in a serving capacity, I've never heard anyone in the world say anything but this. Have you? Man, I went to serve the people and I was blessed. Joy, beauty, fragrant life. The Lord wants to do something today. He wants to save you if you've never been saved. He wants you to come into a relationship with uh, him by just surrendering your life and receiving him. You would read John 1, 12 through 16. Or excuse me, 12. Just read 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. He wants to do something. If you've never been saved, he wants you to come into the relationship with him. If you are saved and you're not joyful, you're not seeing the grace of God anymore, you're ducking under it or closing your eyes to it, he wants to reveal uh, his grace. And he says in the grace, the doctrine of grace, as I come to replace rules and come into a personal relationship with me, your life's going to explode with fruitfulness joy. Why? What's the end game? Well, so that you'll be healthy and stay under the shadow of its wings in the healthiest and best place to be, but also that so that other people will come and grab fruit from your life and take from it. And when they do that refreshing thing, when they come as you're serving them, they'll surrender their lives to Jesus too. What a book, the book of John. I'm going to ask the worshipers to come up. We're going to sing as we go out of here. If you have questions, if I've thoroughly confused you like I did last week, come up and talk to me. But here's the deal. If the Lord's tugging on your heart, because you don't know if you're going to heaven or not, or he's real or not. I'd love to talk to you. If you are stuck in a rut, come up and we'll pray for you. If uh, you want to go to Hungary, not go hungry, but go to Hungary, (laughs) come up and talk to me too afterwards. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for this morning and for Uh, Wow, your eternal word that is so deep and rich and yet can be understood by children. Wow, thank you, Lord. We're so thankful that you are helping us move and grow through this book and seeing things that we've never seen before. Help us, Lord, to have your joy. We need your strength and your resource. You do the beautifying, if that's a word, but we cooperate with you. Lord, if there's a thing that you've asked us to do, to serve or something else. Help us to have the strength to walk through that door and be uh, obedient. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.